Hi there, and welcome to the Beam Voice Podcast. My name is Petru Konduraro, and I'm glad to have you here. I'm a civil engineer living and working in Norway since 2014, and I'm passionate about building information modeling. I truly believe change is necessary and inevitable in our industry. To implement faster, better, and less costly ways of working, digital transformation is vital, and everyone involved must stop just talking about implementing BIM and actually do it. And what way to do it better than just to learn from the ones who have done it in the past or are doing it right now? Welcome to a new episode of uh, BIM Voice Podcast. Today's guest is Gavin Crump. He's uh, the founder of uh, uh, the YouTube channel OC BIM Guru, where he's publishing uh, each week two three times BIM educational videos. He also started this year his own uh, BIM consulting company, which is called uh, BIM Guru. Uh, yeah, welcome, Gavin. Thanks for having me on the show. Um, it's good, good to be here. And um, yeah. It's Gavin <laughs> or Gavin? Uh, Gavin. Yeah, Gavin's great. Um, otherwise, fine. But um, yeah, just, just happy to be on the show. And um, thanks for having me on board and look forward to talking about all things BIM, which I guess we're both very passionate about. So Yeah, yeah you're right. Uh, why don't we start by telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. So um, I guess for people that haven't heard me on other podcasts or met me before or seen my channel, um, I've been working in AEC in Australia for the last 10 years. Um, so I, I grew up in a hometown called Adelaide, which is in the south um, centre of Australia. And my, my first BIM project was a $2 billion hospital. Um, so I was very lucky to start with a very big scale of BIM which sort of gave me a passion for um, BIM management, model management. And that sort of um, led to the way that my career grew. So I started off as a, an architectural technician, so very basic and grew my way through some coordination roles on some, some fairly large scale projects. Um, nothing the same scale as my first project because you know, we don't see too many $2 billion projects in our, yeah. in our career. Um, hoping to see at least one or two more maybe. Um, and then eventually I moved into a BIM management role and that really became the focus of my career, um, mainly for the last five years. And a year ago, I launched the YouTube channel, um, as Petru was saying, um, the Aussie BIM Guru, which was sort of a response to what I saw as a gap in information in the industry um, that needed to be filled. And I was also very passionate about um, such programs as Dynamo. Um, and how they can speed up our workflows and make our day more efficient and get us out at 5.30 occasionally. Um, so that sort of became a focus of what I started doing with my, my time and how I started projecting my, my image to the market. Um, and that eventually led me to decide to launch my own company, um, which gave me the freedom to essentially talk about anything I want really, um, because intellectual property is now, it's now mine. So if I talk about an idea, I no longer have to worry about you know, sharing a company secret. Now I can just do it myself and it gives me the full freedom that I need. Um, so yeah, so now I work in Sydney. Um, I launched my business at the start of this year. So it was a very interesting time to start a business because I guess we all know what happened in February, yes. <laughs> <North> November, <laughs> depending who you're talking to. <laughs> so that was a really interesting thing, but I've actually found that it, it's been going really well and it's a really interesting way to take on the market. So I work here at this desk most of the time from home. Um, by default with my two cats that you'll probably see jumping around as, yeah. as we talk. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, it's great to be here. And I, I always love to meet other people that are passionate about BIM and want to share their ideas and their thoughts and just improve the, the industry as a whole. So um, yeah, thanks for having me on board and let's get started. <laughs> yeah. Uh, how's been the, uh, the move to Sydney? You said you moved to Sydney from Adelaide. 
Yeah, yeah. So I moved here about um, almost five years ago now. Wow, it, it doesn't feel like that long, but then when then you say it, you're like, wow, it's been a yeah. long time. Um, but yeah, Sydney's amazing. It's it's such a great city to work in. It's very vibrant. Lots of people from lots of areas of the world travel here, so you get to meet a lot of people from different cultures um, and work with them as well. So it's a really vibrant place to live. Um, you know, obviously it's been a bit a bit quiet for the last few months, but usually there's a lot of things on here as well, a lot of festivals and. It's a very forward city. The infrastructure is getting really well developed here. Um, costs a lot of money, but I guess it pays off in the long run. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a great place to be. Um, you know, I've got a partner here now, a lot of my friends in Sydney. I've still got a lot of friends back in Adelaide as well. Um, but it really has become like home to me, I guess. Um, I mean, the real estate is out of control. Like, no one can afford a house here at my yeah. age. It's uh, The median house price is more than a million dollars. Um, so that's probably the, the, the downside to living in Sydney that you don't really live in Sydney. You live in an apartment in Sydney, yeah. <laughs> but um, unless, unless the bank of mum and dad uh, lends some money to, to buy an apartment. And luckily my parents actually decided to, to give me some independence and not do that. <laughs> so but, um, it, it's a great city to be in. Um, but maybe one day I might travel overseas um, to work. I would like to one day experience that. Um, if, if there's time or the chance, I'll see how it goes. I mean, what I'm doing with my channel and my business is giving me a lot more mobility. So I have the ability to potentially pick up and move somewhere else if I want to. Um, so maybe in a year or two, depending what happens, that might, might be on the cards. But um, yeah, for now, it's really cool. Yeah. That sounds great, man. Mm. Um, what kind of services are you providing through your company? Yeah, so um, I, I try to provide as much as I feel like and specialize in. Um, I like to tell people that I'm a specialist, not a generalist. Um, so some consultants or, or like outsourcing firms are what I would call like a generalist service where they say, we'll do anything you want. Like, you know, AutoCAD, Revit, ArchiCAD, we'll do it all. And I'm saying, yeah, that's, that's not what, how I want to work. I want to take the things that I'm really good at and make that my, my niche. Um, so I'd say like I have four, I know five core services that I focus on. So I have like a strategy service where I do like audits and reports and assessments. Um, I've done a few of those already, um, where I sort of give my, my feedback on how they could improve their BIM services. Um, and I found that that's a really good place to start in consulting rather than just go and give them a solution straight away because sometimes that might not be the right solution because you need that conversation between the client to really reach like a, a suitable solution for them because sometimes you, you've only just met their company and you might make like an assumption that's, that's wrong if you've only just met them. So it's good to sort of have that, that strategic review. Um, but from there, I sort of divide my services into three active services. So one is uh, modeling or, or BIM modeling assistance or active modeling. Typically it involves things like building Revit content. Um, so really advanced family creation. So things like LED 400 facade assemblies. I've been doing a few projects with that recently, which is quite, quite intense, but quite interesting. Um, so helping people with more bespoke solutions that you wouldn't necessarily just find on, you know, like a website for download. Um, and then also doing like model management. So coming in and actually auditing using things like Dynamo. So I have my own like custom Dynamo scripts that I use to actually audit people's projects. And that obviously saves me a little bit of time, but means that I can actually give them, you know, better feedback on their model um, based on their actual model rather than just looking at it and going, ah, oh, that wall's a bit too short. You know, obviously it's the really the big things like, you know, you've, you've got 5,000 warnings, like what's going on, <laughs> like the really big problems. Yeah. Um, but then there I also develop scripts. So I write um, Dynamo and Grasshopper scripts um, to automate and sort of make people's lives a little bit easier. So whilst I do release scripts for free, 
on my YouTube channel a lot. Um, I also get clients that come to me with very custom things that they need. Um, so it might be like an AutoCAD routine. They used to automate using a Lisp, for example, so like a, a script. And now they've, now they've moved to Revit and they don't have that routine available anymore. So they need it to be rebuilt exactly the same way. But in Dynamo, um, that was I did one project like that for someone in America that was really interesting. Um, can't obviously say too much about it because it's all client confidence, but it was a interesting challenge um, to, to be given someone else's problem for once rather than solve my own problems. Um, and then also I, um, I do project coordination, which I haven't actually done yet, um, but I do use Navisworks quite a lot in my, in my previous work. So I'm hoping eventually like there'll be a client that needs someone to assist with their coordination. Um, it's a bit more challenging because I guess you, you, you're not necessarily working within the company. So sometimes coordinating from that perspective can be a little bit challenging. Mm. Uh, but I've, I know some consultants that do do that. So I'm hoping eventually that might become a service that I provide. And I guess the final service that really relates to my channel is that I also do mentoring and training. So I'm preparing like training content. So sometimes I make videos for my clients. If I give them a solution, I'll produce a, um, like a little mini tutorial that they can keep in their company to, to give them context to their solution. Um, but also just, just building guides for people or just giving one-on-one -on -one mentoring to people. I've got a few people around the world that I've, I've Skyped with for, for just, just for like a consulting fee and sort of give them advice on their career and sort of help give them like pathways for growth as well. So um, yeah, quite, quite a few services um, and, you know, used most of them so far as well. So, so pretty fun. Yeah. That sounds good. Uh, yeah. What about the YouTube channel? Uh, what kind of yeah. videos? You said you, you publish more about scripting with Revit. Yeah, that, that's probably been the core focus. Um, probably computational design. Um, so Dynamo and a little bit of Grasshopper. That's usually been the focus of the channel. Um, I have been branching out here and there to different topics. So I do um, like I did a mini series on like Python, for example. So how to how to write basic Python scripting. But I also um, I started off probably looking at Revit more so doing tutorials on like good data structuring. So setting up a shared parameter file, some of those fundamental things that, you know, a, a well set up model and company needs. Um, so that, that sort of launched my channel. And then I sort of redirected it into Dynamo for a while. I'm hoping to take it back into Revit uh, for a while because I've been releasing some Revit content through my business. Um, so I'd sort of want to use that as a way to give some context to my channel and, and also to my business and sort of say, well, if you've if you've purchased my, my door content, I'm going to do a few tutorials just to show you how I actually built some of this content. So, you know, in, in my door content, for example, I'll show people how to build like a, an intelligent door frame that responds to different scenarios so that they can also develop my content further um, and sort of give some context to, to Revit in a, in a big office management setting as well. So I'll probably look at BIM 360 um, pretty soon as well, because I've had a few requests for, you know, how can I set up a project in BIM 360 and, Whilst there is some content out there for it that's pretty good, I think there's some that I can probably produce as well to help people that little bit more. And, and I hope to talk about Navisworks as well because I haven't actually looked at any Navisworks on the channel yet. And that's probably one of my favorite Autodesk programs. Um, so I think that's probably, probably one that needs to be shared as well. So yeah, lots of, um, lots of things planned for the, for the channel, probably enough videos to keep you going for a long time. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, hopefully I'll do two videos a week and try to keep it up, yeah. That sounds really good. Yeah. Um, why should someone use scripts? Why good do we question. need scripts? Very good question. <laughs> I get asked this a lot by um, people that don't use scripts. Um, and it's usually just because if you've got a process that you can do and a computer can do it for you, then, then why would you not want it to do it for you? I guess, it, especially if it's something that 
is very boring or repetitive or something that you don't actually want to do for part of your job. Like, you know, most of us don't want to tag. We don't want to put beers on sheets in BIM programs. We want to design, we want to coordinate, we want to solve challenges. Um, so if a script can take away some of that, that tedium in our day, um, it essentially returns time back to us to use um, for our job before the computer came and gave us all these extra little jobs to do. So that's, that's probably the main reason that I try to teach people to script because it can save them a lot of time, but it can also improve how we interact with the BIM model as well, because we can process our data um, much more effectively and much faster. So if I'm looking for say, every single door in a, in a project that's fire rated to make sure that all my fire rated doors are in fire rated walls, you could build a Dynamo script to probably do more than a thousand doors in less than five seconds. So there's some really quick time-saving things you can use it for as well that I think makes model managers more effective and BIM managers more effective as well. And it allows technicians as well to almost do things that model managers could do. Um, so it raises the general skill level and appreciation for, for what a good BIM model needs to be and what, what a good information structure is. Because if there's bad information, you're gonna get a bad output with scripting. So I think it, it teaches people more about the quality of information in BIM as well. So they're probably the main reasons that I tend to sort of, sort of sell people over with. Mm. But there's, there's lots of other reasons too, like just using mathematical geometry functions. If, if you wanna create a very complex roof that's defined by like a cosine wave, um, to do that manually, it's, it's, it's almost impossible unless you're a mathematical genius that can manually mm. do it by hand. But, but I mean, what's the point when a computer can do it for us, right? Exactly. So, um, yeah, yeah. How about yeah. yourself? Do you, do you interact with scripting at all in, in your work? No, unfortunately not. I'm just uh, yeah. playing myself at home and when I have time. Do you see the opportunity in future to probably use it in your work? Yeah, right now I'm using mostly AutoCAD. So uh, I don't really think it's so easy. It would be easy to implement it. Uh, in Revit, it makes sense, but not in exactly what I'm doing right now. Yeah, you can write um, like Lisp routines, I think, in AutoCAD, can't you? Yeah. which are a little bit like scripting. They're, they're just like written written code instead, yeah. Yeah, but uh, I'm hoping uh, from the next project I will work on, I will, uh, I'll do more like this. Definitely. Yeah, yeah, because I guess every major BIM program does have like a scripting environment now, even like Archicad has access to Grasshopper um, through yeah. through the connection to Rhino and Revit's got Dynamo and also Rhino inside. And I think Allplan has its own integrated um, coding system. So every program sort of is gaining this access to the yeah. to the to um, this environment now, which is great, yeah. Yeah, and I think uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, AutoCAD is going to have uh, Dynamo as well from this, yeah. uh, this last uh, version. Yeah, you can already technically connect um, Dynamo to AutoCAD by using mm -hmm a bit of a, like a backdoor, I think in Dynamo Studio, I think I've heard some people have managed to successfully get Dynamo Studio to point at like the current open session of AutoCAD. Um, it's obviously not like a basic user thing, but yeah, it shows that it's definitely gonna be possible very soon. I've been actually using Dynamo for Civil 3D this week. So I started trying to just learn a little bit of Civil 3D and then I saw the Dynamo button and I was like, oh, of course I've got to use Dynamo. <laughs> so, so yeah, there's definitely a lot of access yeah, coming through. But uh, I guess you're using, I, I think it's, it's coming with the uh, 2020 version, right? Um, it, it, I think it came Civil 3D. Yeah, Civil 3D it came with 2020. Um, and AutoCAD, I, don't, I didn't see it with uh, AutoCAD 2021. So I'm guessing it must be coming in a, in a future release, yeah. 
But something uh, maybe very important to mention about why scripting is good, not only when you build it, but the editing and updating part, there is the actually the magic trick. As the company gets bigger as well, like the, the, um, the management of the scripting process is very difficult. I know some companies that hire programmers in-house just to manage their tools because it's so much work to deploy and to maintain. And, and every time a new version of a software comes in, all the scripts have to be rebuilt typically. So it, it, it's a big effort. Um, I think a big part of how to justify it in a company is that you have to actually track how much time you're saving by using it. <clears throat> like at my last company I worked at, I actually put a tiny little script in all my main scripts that literally said every time ran one, someone ran one of my scripts that actually sent like a, a bit of information to a server. And I could actually say how many times are we using like these scripts every day? Hmm. And it used to measure things like, you know, if it was placing a view on a sheet, it, it actually said, oh, this person placed 300 views on a sheet. And it said, oh, on average, a, a sheet's going to take, you know, five seconds to put on a, a view is going to take this long to put on a sheet. So it started to sort of measure some of that time. And then I could visually put it forward to executives and say, this is how much time Dynamo has actually saved the company in the last two weeks, three weeks, month. And these are the people that used it and these are the projects we used it on. Um, so if you can build those justification points, I think that the, the deployment can be sort of offset by, by the time saved, but it is a balancing act um, to, and, it, and, and it needs to be very transparent. I find a lot of people in companies, they'll say, oh, visual coding, it's the future, we need to do it. Everyone should learn it. And then they, they forget to tell them, oh, by the way, every time a new program comes out, we've got to go re-review all the scripts. And sometimes they're not going to work. Sometimes they'll crash forever. It's like, it, it, there's a level of honesty that comes with yeah. um, using coding. And I think um, that the best people, they manage that culture of the company and say, listen, it's not always going to be perfect. There's going to be challenges. Just like, you know, with, with BIM, there's challenges. With drawing, there's challenges. With coordination, it's not always perfect. No. I think that's really important just to, just to maintain. So you're right. It, it is a challenge from a deployment and a maintenance perspective, but I guess it isn't anything really in what we do. Mm. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we can go more and deeper into this uh, regarding uh, the solution. Like you said, the companies are, are hiring in-house uh, developers for this. Yeah. yeah I don't think that is that very one. effective actually. That would be much easier if, more companies would work together maybe to mm. to have something more common right yeah well i think um one one really good thing about things like dynamo and grasshopper is that they're sort of like an open platform to some degree so if someone builds a script in one company sometimes that information does just reach other people um by giving them like an idea so even if they don't share the script like sharing the idea yeah. is something that people do so they'll go oh we've just automated a way to put you know, all our elevations automatically generated and on the sheets and yeah. all you need is the idea. And as long as you're a good coder, you'll know, okay, I'll go search for the solution. So I find that that's sort of spreading at least some ideas, even if they're not sharing the source, they're at least starting to improve just by talking to each other about this new, this new phenomenon or this trend. Cause I guess when you go to talk someone to someone about like a, like a door block in AutoCAD, it's not necessarily going to really help them that much. But if you said, oh, we build a routine that goes and tags all our doors automatically. You can go, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, maybe we should try that too. So I think it's raising it's raising the bar slowly but surely just through being a little bit open, I guess, because you can't really lock down like a Dynamo script or you can't really lock down Dynamo hmm. or Grasshopper. So that's one really good thing. And a lot of the packages that are being developed for them, not by Autodesk or, or the companies that build the programs, but just people that develop, um, they're really building like quite a strong community of tools and 
and people that can use them. Um, so I think that's helped connect a few of the companies and the people in the companies that weren't so connected before. So there's definitely a lot of opportunities emerging like that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, let's go a little bit back to the roots of this uh, podcast idea. Uh, building information modeling. Three words, so many meanings. How do you describe BIM? Yeah, so usually I just usually I just turn the word around and I just say modeling to generate information so we can get to the art of building. I like to look at it as a process of the model being the mechanism, the information being what we get out of the, the mechanism and building being the process that, that it all supports. Um, and I guess I sort of jumps over B and lives on in the model as the built asset as well. Now that we have facilities management databases. So I guess I is probably the most important part of BIM to me because the information is, it's, it's, it's how we generate our process, but it's also what, what, what the building becomes beyond just being a physical building. Um, and I guess we're seeing with things like the digital twin movement as well, that the information aspect is becoming very, very important now. Um, but yeah, I usually see it as a process uh, of those three aspects sort of connecting each other almost in a sequence. So modeling to generate information to make a building, um, whether it's a digital or a physical building, I guess is, is two different things. But I, I like to sort of describe it that way to like newcomers to BIM, um, because otherwise everyone just looks at the M and goes, well, it's a 3D model. Wow, we can do 3D. And it's like the 3D is just like the first thing that people should get excited about. And then beyond that, it should be about databases and you know all sorts of things that we can do by pushing data around. And then actually going out to site and communicating using these these, these data rich environments and like, you know, doing clash detections, things that we just couldn't do before um, without, without the BIM system um, that brings it all together. Yeah, so that, that's sort of how I try to see it. How about yourself? <laughs> well, uh, I, I completely agree with that. I think uh, there are many misconceptions about BIM mm. and uh, sure. this is one of my goals to help with that. Mm. Uh, clarify with that and like you said the 3d model it's the thing people uh, see the first time mm. and many unfortunately many of them are limiting beam to the 3d model yep. uh, i see many others limiting beam to a specific software which is also mm. Mm. Uh, not very good and i think people must understand that beam implies cooperation and collaboration yeah, precisely. Because I think this is one of the biggest challenges in mm. with BIM. I'm not happy with the state of BIM today. I think it can mm. be better. I we think everyone I would think agree with too, that in the industry right now. So yeah. I think it's too much focus on how we can get better at what we do, right? But we if we look from this, you described very well BIM, but from a consultant perspective mostly, right? Uh Sort of from my professional perspective too. So also working as a BIM manager, I still sort of take my take my mentality with me as a consultant. I guess um, I find that like being a consultant hasn't really changed my perspective too much. Um, it's changed how I approach what I do with BIM um, and how I do it with other people. So how I collaborate is quite different to how I collaborated before. I guess, um, but yeah, I try to see it like the same that I always have because I guess my view on BIM has sort of evolved over time as I've worked with it, because I first began with BIM looking at it as modeling um, and also looking at it as Revit. I'll be honest, I did start with the limited platform approach. Um, yeah. You know, I, I looked at other programs, but I didn't use them, didn't try them, um, didn't look at interoperability workflows. But as I further developed into BIM, like I started picking up connections to other platforms. So my first one was Rhino. 
Um, I learned about rhinoceros and how you can sort of manipulate geometry in different ways. And then also um, looking at IFC, I'm still trying to learn more about IFC because I'm not finding that that many clients are demanding it yet, which is making it hard to, to really pick it up. Because if you don't have a project context to put it in, then it's very hard to learn it properly. Um, so I'm learning about, you know, IFC data set mapping and how you can view them in different programs like Celebri. Um, but yeah, also, also other platforms like Archicad and Vectorworks and Allplan. I need, I need to learn a little bit more about those still, but I've tried each of them out. I've got a feel for, you know, how other people work in Vim too, because, you know, we all need to work together regardless of the program we use. Yeah, yeah. So I, I sort of agree that, you know, that the, the platform can be a limiting scope as well. Um, and that, uh, at the same time, it is hard to learn every single program and, you know, know how everyone works, but maybe it's just that the program isn't the focus, I guess, even though it does generate most of the outcome. Yes, yes, I think uh, actually the, the softwares are just taking further uh, what people want, right? And consultants need the software to design the, the building, right? They will build you a software where you can do that, right? Project manager needs a software to manage the project and the constructor needs other kind of software, right? So, uh, but this is actually what I think it's very important to understand. Like we as consultants, yeah, we, we do pretty well, like uh, from an entity perspective, like we focus a lot to improve our processes and such. But if we look, for example, at other parts, contractors, even there are several of them uh, investing and trying to digitalize there's many of them that don't do too much about this and they keep doing it on the yeah uh, the traditional uh, way yeah it's it's the, the short term vision and seems to be the challenge it's we're still making money right now so we must be doing the right thing whereas i don't think maybe in 10 years maybe we won't be making money if we keep doing this i think a big challenge with builders that i've encountered too is that even when they're doing bim they're only doing it so they can stay competitive. They're not doing it because they actually want to do BIM. Like they're not interested in the outcome or the process. And because they don't understand the value they can uh, harvest from this on the long term. That's the problem. Yeah, because my experience as a, an architectural BIM manager is I was always heavily driving the process, even when it was like on site. Um, I was still out there having to say, listen, like this isn't working. Like we need to think about the process here. And, and sometimes it was just, oh, we're already building it. So... You know, it doesn't matter. Just just go and update the as-built drawings. We don't need to look at the model. And it's like, wait, like you guys said there's a big management plan here. Come on. Like, so it's a, there's a bit of a like a push and pull process, even when the builder is in BIM. But at the same time, too, architects need to respect, I guess, why they're modeling and what they're drawing and how it impacts the site at the end of the day. So there's, there's a real disconnect from both sides of the fence, I find, between design, but also construction. And I guess communication is ultimately the solution and, you know, building processes that suit how the project needs to be delivered and you know who needs to receive the right information but it's a lot of moving parts isn't it yeah yeah and the the most forgotten part about this is actually the asset manager the owner mm. of the building yeah the ones that you throw the models at right at the end <laughs> they uh, they are not interested to learn more about BIM. They miss uh, <laughs> most often, the most, most important often, yeah. thing because they are going to use the building the longest uh, yeah. period of exactly. time, right? They have the most value to derive in terms of time, at least yes. in the model for sure. Yeah. I think there is like, a, there's a few reasons behind it. I, I do feel bad for some of them because they probably didn't really get a lot of warning, um, very direct warning, because it's not like their building managers were telling them about it. It's not like their clients were probably telling them about it either. So there was a bit of a gap between the people using them to, to design and put models together and, and them sitting on the outside trying to figure out what, what's going on out there. So there's, there's been a bit of a disconnect. There are some 
building managers, like some really large commercial entities um, that are starting to develop their own digital twin in-house platforms. There's a, there's a company in Sydney here called Willow um, who are quite well known now for developing some digital twin setups um, with Microsoft and also for a mate, one of their major clients that they advertise is called Investor. And from what I understand, they have like commercial buildings that they're actually developing digital assets for now. Um, but they did have to heavily commit to that process um, for it to be successful. So it's hard to, I guess, start with the entire thing. It's like, it's, it's a gradual process to pick it up. So yeah, I agree with you. Most facilities managers, they're not really that interested. I mean, a lot of them I meet are quite, they're quite old and they've been doing things like a certain way for a very long time. They've got like an Excel table that, you know, they've been using for the last 20 years. So I'm not gonna go and take my Excel table away. It's, it's this hard mentality of almost software sometimes that they're like, oh, I've just used this program this way. So it's almost the, the program limitation as well that we encounter in BIM ourselves is sort of ha happening there as well. Um, but you're right, they have the most to gain, um, but I guess they need the most engagement from, from the people driving BIM to really bring it into the picture as well. Mm. Yeah, and, and exactly there, right? Like uh, the buildings right now are designed by someone to be built by someone and to be used by someone. But when it, the building is designed, there is no much interaction as far as I mm. know uh, to find out how are you going to use this and how exactly, can you yeah. make sure, how can we start working from right now to build you a platform or something that you can use for 50 years or 100 years for infrastructure projects, for example, in order, exactly, right? Yeah, yeah. If, you, if you do that, how much value will you, will you get from that? over this yeah, yeah, time so span. much i mean the key is to ask the right questions at the right time to the right people i guess I've, I've, I've always tried to engage the client very early on projects as a bin manager and it can be very hard to do because sometimes the executive people in the company don't want to put the bin manager in front of the client because they think we're going to scare them by talking about too many technical terms and they'll think that we're wasting all this money on some program that's not doing anything but most of the time when I have got in front of the client i've literally just said listen like what are your goals what what, what do you need out of this process I'm not going to tell you what we can do. I'm going to ask you what you need and then I'll tell you how we can do it. So there's that need for that two-way conversation between both parties. And I've seen like in the UK, for example, that they're trying to really emphasize this by using the, um, the employer information requirements or the EIR process. Um, and they are still finding that a lot of clients don't really get involved with it, but some, some do because it's there. Um, you almost need to force them to get involved from what I've been told sometimes and say, listen, like you need to have this meeting with us because it's part of, you know, ISO 19650 now, we, we don't have a choice. Like you should be coming in this meeting and you should, you should be coming prepared and we'll, we'll tell you the things you need to know before. And I think there's, there's a need for that process to really be facilitated, you know, quite early before, almost before you even model. Cause like you said, you know, there's no point in modeling and then having to go back and change it all just because, there's a new goal in the project. So, so yeah, that, that's definitely sort of the, the direction that I hope, you know, the, the direction of BIM in projects is, is going in for most countries. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think this is vital. And um, I don't know if you are up to date with the work building Smart is doing. Yeah, yeah, I've been keeping track of them for a few years now. Yeah, there's quite a lot of heavy work they're putting in at the moment. So um, especially in regards to a lot of their digital twin movements, I've been trying to keep track of sort of how they're, trying to set up a process that can facilitate that um, ultimate, you know, digital asset handover. So there's yeah, quite a lot of heavy work that they're doing and it's pretty impressive. Like I'm still, still trying to come up to terms with how it's actually impacting projects. Like it seems like a lot of it is still being spoken about, but not necessarily impacting the projects yet. But, um, but I can see the potential for 
for what it's going to do um, when it really hits hits everyone. Like even things like IFC, we're still not really there with IFC, for example. Like we've got programs that can't even generate these files the right way and people that don't even know what IFC stands for. Um, like for example, on LinkedIn the other day, there was a big post thread and someone said, oh, IFC is like the PDF of, of BIM. And everyone's going, no, no, PDF isn't an open format. But then suddenly one person said, IFC stands for issued for construction. <laughs> and then suddenly everyone just started saying that. And, and about half the comments now are just saying, I know what it stands for, it's issued for construction. And it's just like, oh, <laughs> we, we, we've come so far, but we haven't come so far. It's like, so there's still that sort of, the, the lack of spread of knowledge. Um, there's people like us that are obviously BIM professionals and we know exactly what we're doing, but but to get this spread around the industry, it's quite a big effort. So I hope that everything Building Smart does is actually gonna gonna spread and not just be like a thing for the BIM manager to manage in the background. And, you know, because ultimately that, that, that does happen a lot. You know, if there's a data management structure required on the project, they'll just give us the contract and say, yeah, you figure it out. We don't know what to do. You know, we've got five fields that we need in Excel and just you make the magic happen and we'll talk later. So I think it's it's more about, yeah, setting up that process that can actually, you know, be a two-way two way conversation. But um, yeah, building smart stuff and good work there, yeah. Yes, mm. there are many challenges and uh, let's hope we will start working better together. Mm. Oh, we'll get there. Like it's no, no question that we'll have to eventually. I think as clients become more aware, of you know what what we're meant to be giving them i think that's that's one thing that's putting a lot of pressure on people like if you get a client that knows what an ifc is meant to look like and how it's meant to behave in a viewing program puts a lot of pressure on people to to make it right because they'll they'll be able to tell when they get something that's not right um whereas i guess maybe five ten years ago with bim the client didn't know if they were being given the wrong thing because they probably didn't know how to open the file or they didn't know what good data would look like and now they're probably saying a few like really good client, really good um, consultants give them like, you know, the best of the best. And now they know when they're not getting the best of the best, I think. So that's probably going to help sort of put some pressure on, some pressure on us as professionals to make sure that we, I guess we lift the, the, we lift the bar a little bit too. And, and I guess clients will talk to executives and executives will talk to us and there'll be that sort of conversation that'll happen in that process too, hopefully. Yeah, yeah. I think maybe uh, also us as consultants might uh do a better job um trying not to speak so cryptically about everything mm. we do mm. and uh, to to try to to explain for someone who who doesn't have a clue about bim to understand yeah. that especially the owner right they they have a very important role in this process actually that's not something is going to be used for them mm. and they must be outside of it no they they must be involved through the entire process yeah, it's a great point. I mean, even I find I have to really think about how I talk to talk to clients and potential clients too, because I, I have scared a client off by, before by using too much jargon. And I was like, oh no, I scared them off, didn't I? I could tell I'd done it. And I was like, oh, I did it. Because <laughs> I guess like it's hard because on my YouTube channel, like I'm very technical. Um, you know, I, I have to assume that everyone sort of knows what I'm talking about already when I use very complex terms. But but when I talk to a client, I have to go, okay, uh, even though they might know what I'm talking about, let's just let's just assume they don't. And then you know build that rapport so you're right it's a very important thing i saw this great video the other day by um a company called Planoly that you might have heard of that's doing online bim management plans now yes i have a marketing video and it's called explaining bim to grandma <laughs> and it just puts it in the most simple terms and i was like this is perfect this is what this is how we need to talk about BIM. it's very interesting and it, it really sort of made me think about how i communicate um, to people that don't know about BIM, even my partner, like she doesn't work in architecture or construction, so she 
when I first met her, she thought I said I was a bin manager, like the bins, like recycling bins. <laughs> she thought I thought I was like the guy that takes the bins out. Yeah, and I said, no, no, BIM manager. And she's like, what's BIM? And I'm like, oh, yeah, of course. You don't know what BIM is. Yeah, so, so it's sort of there's that, that, that level of sort of understanding that has to be built with people. So it's, yeah. it's, quite, it's quite funny. And yeah, it, it makes you think a lot about it. Yeah. I don't know uh, which book I read this from, but uh, there is a saying about this. If you cannot explain it to a six-year-old, then you mm. don't know how to explain well yeah, enough. Look, I think it might be a person that quoted that. I, I've seen that quote around and I always like it. It's like, yeah, if you can't explain it to a child, like, you know, you're not doing it right. Yeah. That's always challenging me as well. When I'm trying to explain something to my son, who's four and a half years old, I level back <laughs> always when I think about that. When that quote pops up in, into my mind, and I'm like, okay. It's good practice though, actually. It must be great to have a child and sort of talk in, that, in a different sort of way to someone that you don't have to talk to adults like. It's yeah, a whole it's awesome. It's a whole different way they look at the world, right? Like, yeah, because my, um, my partner's got a, a nephew who's just um, just two and he's, he's just started to start like making, like trying to make words. And it's, it's just interesting how you have to communicate so differently with them, but you sort of get so much more out of it sometimes because you really think harder about what you say. Uh, interesting experience uh, it keeps you more, uh, much more in the present yeah yeah definitely well, it makes you more conscious of your words and how you use them and I, and I guess we do waste a lot of our words don't we in the way that we the way we use them in today's society so it's a good good thing to be aware of and I think it's actually really relevant for most BIM professionals to think about that too, so it's a great point yeah I think it's uh, like you said jargon there are too many words or the ways uh, we speak uh, I see at conferences and such it's like uh, meant to impress people, not to make them understand how that thing could be useful. Yeah, I've got a perfect example. Uh, I was looking at a digital twin the other day and someone put a post up about it. And I said, oh, this is just like, they're talking about it the same way we spoke about BIM 10 years ago. And then someone said, oh, it's not even digital twin anymore. It's now it's called Gemini principles. And I was like, oh, like we just made a new one already and it's not even established. <laughs> Come on, guys. Like, yeah, these buzzwords right now. Yeah, I see. I see lots of uh, use of uh, digital twin, which is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, it's it's Gem Gemini principles now, apparently. So it's all, it's all, it's all changing. Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah, but no, is the buzzing yeah. word, it, it goes well maybe with uh, SEO and I don't know. Yeah, uh, marketing like... SEO, definitely a part of it. Yeah. Yeah, but no, we, we do have an obligation, I guess, as educators as well in BIM to, to make sure that we communicate clearly as well. That's one thing I've learned in my channel over time to try to be clear with what I'm saying. Like when I go back to my first videos and I try to watch them, I'm like, wow, like if I didn't know how to use Dynamo at all, I, I would leave this video in like 20 seconds because the first five words I use, I'm just, I don't know what any of those words mean. So, so it does make you think more about how you sort of lead someone into like an idea before you sort of build up their, their understanding beyond a certain point. Because at the same time, there is a need to sort of get more advanced eventually. Like you can't always talk in basic terms. Sometimes there is a need to, to talk in a little bit more, you know, a bit more jargon, but you've got to sort of lead them down that path first before you start throwing the crazy words on the table. So yeah, it's, it's all about that communication process. I guess it, it all comes back to communication in our industry, really, at the end of the day. That's, that's nearly every problem and every solution. I find it just comes back to how we communicate. It seems to be the solution or, or the challenge. Yeah. Then it's good I, uh, because I'm not a native English speaker and uh, I won't have too, too complex uh, language. So it is going to be quite clear for, for the listeners. It probably helps, I guess, a little bit. Yeah. 
<laughs> I've got two challenges. I have too many words in English already, and then I'm Australian too. So we use a lot of slang and we, we shorthand everything as well. So we've got two challenges there. So yeah, you, you're, you're lucky in those two terms, I guess. Yeah. But in Australia, we make every word into like, I don't know if you've heard our slang before, but we've got words for everything and no one outside Australia knows what we're talking about. <laughs> Basically everything, everything with an O on the end. So afternoon is like Savo. So, but no one outside Australia knows what we're talking about when we say, ah, oh, to see the Savo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Crazy. It's so lazy. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was cool to hear. What else happening in our industry excites you? Yeah, I mean, scripting and coding definitely excites me just because it's becoming mainstream now that that's probably what gets me most excited right now because I'm suddenly seeing people that have no programming background um, like myself and just even newcomers being able to do very sophisticated um, things in their designs and also to, to work with processes that actually work in a more realistic sense when it comes to things like um, design for manufacturing. I found that like computation has been a great way to bridge the gap between um, a lot of manufacturers and us because they can give us constraints that we can put into like computational environments to lay on our design. So even if we went and made this crazy wall, maybe they say we can only work with an angle of, you know, a certain distance in our framing. And then you go and have to build a script and say, well, is there anywhere where we can't achieve this, this shape? So I find that that can be a really exciting way to bridge the gap with, um, with the possibilities of, of design. Um, whereas maybe, before we might've given a wall to a manufacturer and they just would have had to go, oh, I have to make this work now. And they come back to us and say, oh, you've got to change this here because this isn't, this isn't buildable. It's going to cost too much. So I found that's been a really exciting side of construction. Um, as well as that, I'm seeing that there's a, a more of an intersection between the client, the architect and the developers. I find that's an interesting mixture of people to come together at the start of a project. And there's a lot of programs out there that are getting more involved with how we can sort of not, not, not like fully automate, but streamline that part of a, of a project. So like with software like TestFit, for example, or um, Hyper, um, I'm seeing a few of those startups um, getting quite serious now. Um, they're not just like a little tool, they're actually becoming a company that's gonna probably come and really change the front end of how like a project is established and how a client understands the parameters and the constraints of their design. And it forces architects to be a little bit more realistic at that stage as well and really think about budget and finance and achieve a much more buildable solution, which maybe sometimes limits, you know, the way a project evolves and develops because it's sort of rather, rather than building on an idea, you sort of build a crazy idea and have to build it back to make it fit into this box of money that, that we can only realistically afford. So it becomes less of a cost cutting exercise and more of a, more of a detailing exercise, like how can we take this idea that the client loves and now make it a, a reality rather than how can we take our idea that we had um, that the client didn't want because it's too expensive and take it back to you know, something they can afford. So I think that's quite exciting as well. Um, so I think that they're probably the two things that get me the most interested. Like I, I do like another thing, which is like, I have, I have, I'm not involved with it, but there's this movement called Open BIM. Uh, which is trying to make BIM accessible beyond like the big corporate software that, that most people are limited to. And I do find that movement very interesting um, in that maybe one day we might have uniform standards that we all follow. I mean, IFC is probably a good example of one of the, the earlier um, open BIM initiatives that, that actually succeeded to some degree. It's not fully successful yet, but it probably will be one day. And some people are making it successful. Um, but there's, there's programs that are being used in really different ways, like Blender I've seen is getting used by 
a lot of people in OpenVim and they're doing some really interesting things with it. So I think that might be interesting to see if one day we're not all limited by these, you know, three and a half thousand dollar programs a year <laughs> that we all have to pay to use. Yeah, um, Lender. Did you say Lender? Oh, sorry, the the name of the software you just mentioned. Oh, that one's Revit. Revit's about three and a half thousand dollars a year. But the, no, the no, one no, people the using one. is um, Blender. The open source. The open source one. Uh, Blend, Blender 3D. Blender. Okay, um, Blender. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah of yeah. course. But do you mm. see any way to use that for our industry? Not me right now, but I've seen people exploring how to modify Blender um, to make it more of an architecturally focused tool. Um, it's still very, very early. Like they're not, they're not. It's not at the point of being like a replacement. Um, but they're at least experimenting in how they can achieve IFC data structures in elements within like a program like that. And I don't think Blender is going to be the final program that they use. I think it's just them experimenting with like the concept. Um, but it might lead to like an actual new platform that someone develops, which whose goal is to actually be accessible and achieve like a common data standard rather than all these proprietary file formats and programs that can't talk to each other because then we can't talk to each other. And it'll be interesting to see if that really takes off. Um, it'll take a long time. Like I think it's going to be at least 10, 15 years away before it's realistically a thing because we're all so heavily locked into like our, our programs that we're using right now. Um, and you know, some of our projects are going to be going for the next five, 10 years in these, in these, these platforms. So realistically, they're not going to go away. Um, but it'll be interesting to see the pressure that like this movement might put on how, how programs develop over time and which programs make it, which ones don't. So they're, they're probably the, the three major things that, you know, probably get me the most excited right now. How, how about yourself? You did not say anything about AI and uh, machine learning. That's something uh, I'm really excited about. I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued by it. Um, I haven't seen enough realistic application of it yet. Um, I think it's an amazing field. Um, there's so much that it can do. I'm just still trying to figure out exactly what it can do for me, I guess, is my challenge um, in that I can see that there's a lot of possibilities for um, like building up a network of data and using it to inform like better decision-making processes. So when you're going to build like a, a construction project, it might be able to identify the risks just by looking at the project type and saying, these are the 10 things you really need to look out for because we've got a, a full database of these projects and it's been learning over time what, what these risks are connected to. I think that's probably the first application of machine learning that we'll see really successfully with project managers and builders. Um, but I think a couple of builders are already trying to set those sort of databases up. Um, but in terms of like, I guess that the challenge with AI is that so many people say, oh, I'm going to take my hands off the mouse and the computer's going to build my building. For me. And I'm like, that's not what AI is about. It's not about That's that. a good one. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's about the computer enhancing how we work and, and, and being like an, an, an ally for us to, to inform us better about how we should be working. So I, I see the potential. Um, but I guess for now, I'm trying not to, not to get too excited about it because otherwise I feel like I'll just join this crowd of people that expects we're all going to be, you know, living in the future in 10 years time, which. Yeah. It's not easy to make money from that right now. Not, not, not especially not for, uh, small firms. There is no point, but, uh, I think it's, uh, lots of values for big companies that harvest lots of data that can use a lot, could use very well machine learning to, to see things there. Mm. But at the same time too, the challenge with um, machine learning that I've heard from other companies trying it out on a big scale is that you almost need to ask the right questions before you start collecting the data. Because um, otherwise you get an answer to a question that you never asked. And you know, then when you go to ask a question of the data, maybe you're not going to get the answer you were looking for or the answer you hoped for. 
um, because maybe you didn't measure the right data in the right way. So I think it's, it's sort of highlighting the importance of planning as well. Yeah. Um, we can't just take a big dump of data and just hope that it's going to inform us of everything that we need to know. It's, it's sort of the answer and the question. They're really connected when it comes to machine learning. Um, so I, th I look forward to seeing that maybe, again, make data more important and make people think harder about, you know, what we collect, why we collect it. And, you know, maybe we shouldn't be collecting 5,000 things. Maybe we only need to collect 30 things or, you know, th we think harder about what we're doing rather than just dumping data and going with it. I mean, some companies successfully work with a big data dump, like, you know, Facebook and Google and all those that they're working with a gigantic dump of data and they've made it work. But, but they probably did ask the right questions before they started, I'd say. Whereas architects, we tend not to ask the right questions. We tend to get to the get to the answer and then go back and build our question based on the answer we reached. It's a sort of a backwards process sometimes. No, I'm thinking mostly about uh, asset uh, owners. Yeah. Um, for example, like big companies that uh, mm -hmm. state companies that. Uh, You're thinking more like a maintenance aspect, or not only maintenance to learn also from the building of the projects uh and yeah but for maintenance as well yeah uh, i mean they have lots lots of data uh in their system right and that might be used for something yeah i mean i guess there's two applications i can immediately think of one which is already being used which is um uh, building performance collection and using and automating the building's performance aspects i guess that's one thing so you know, setting up a, an asset management model where, you know, the, the cooling and heating and all those things are almost programmed in advance. So you, you can almost predict your, your power consumption based on just some basic weather data, based on some patterns of, you know, what we had to use on X day when the weather was like this. I know that some buildings are already using like a, a predictive analysis technique there, which is pretty cool. Um, and I think as well, I guess, like predicting like the maintenance of the building. So knowing how many things we're going to replace every year based on the data of how, how often we're replacing like, you know, lights and chairs and switches and things like that could be quite interesting to really form like a, I guess, like a, a projection of how much, you know, it's really going to cost us to manage this building and, you know, where we can save money and where we can put money to other, other aspects of how we manage our building. That could be quite, um, quite, quite, quite valuable, I guess. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Or just building performance, like how people use the spaces too. I like that side of, um, that side of it, sort of the WeWork mentality of tracking, tracking meeting rooms and actually figuring out usage patterns. And if that could become like a trend analysis where it says, oh, you should turn this room into like a, a breakout room because we've seen that, you know, no one's going to use it for the next, you know, four weeks or something. But that, that could be an interesting sort of sort of way to collect the data as well. Mm. Looks like we're, uh, we have some, uh, some interesting things ahead of us. Let's hope everything will help with uh, BIM adoption. And yeah. uh, we, if we go back to that, what can we do about this to, to speed up yeah. the process? Uh, what, uh, what would you recommend to someone who wants to level up his or her uh, BIM game? Yeah, so there's usually two sides to this one that I give them. Um, the first one is that no matter what you do and wherever you get to, make sure you give back. Um, never just focus on building yourself up on your own or just for your own good. Like you have an obligation through being taught by other people to give back to what what you what, what gave you in the first place that's sort of one thing that's i've learned through my channel and through interacting with people that you know there is this natural need to actually go back and turn around and say oh actually you over there i'm going to help you now because i know how to do this and that speeds up like the growth of skills in the industry naturally um but i guess if you are learning and you don't you know you're, you're on your learning journey right now um i think usually i just say you know try to focus like build focus on particular topics don't try to learn everything 
all at once. Um, pick the things that are relevant to what you do or what you want to do. Um, don't feel pressured to learn like a particular program just because someone tells you to. If you are not interested in that program, don't, don't feel pressured to learn it. Pick the things that you care most about because you'll learn those the best and the fastest. And you'll probably find ways to solve problems that maybe you thought you needed another program for that maybe that program actually solves too. Um, and I usually try to tell people not to rush to, there's this tendency to rush to catch up um, because everyone's so far ahead and how can I possibly catch up to all these people? But everyone's always at different states of their career and different stages of learning. So I always say that you need to learn to walk before you run. Uh, I find that's usually a really good mentality in that you don't want to just start running and trip over the moment you start trying to use a program because you only learned about the most advanced aspects and you didn't learn the fundamentals. Like Dynamo is a great example of that because a lot of the time I'll do a tutorial on my channel and I sort of skip over the fundamentals because I have a learning series. But someone comes through and says, goes, this is my first workflow, excellent. And I'm like, oh no, like, this can't be your first workflow because you're gonna miss out on so many fundamental concepts that I've went through. So I usually guide them back and say, go back to my learning series and then, then come here after and you'll understand everything I've done. And then sometimes they'll go, oh, I, I built your script and it didn't work. And they'll, they'll send me a warning. and they, they don't even understand what the warning means. Like the, they're just going, oh, tell me what's wrong. And I'm like, no, you need to, you need to learn about this. Like it's a learning journey that you go on here. So, and that's sort of the, the walking, the running before you walk mentality that you just want to do the, the really advanced stuff now because it's, it's the, the fun stuff. But like, it's not fun if, you know, it doesn't work and you don't know why it's not working. So I find that's really important. And probably the last thing um, I tell people is don't be afraid to spend a little bit of money on education if you need to. Like if you see a course that you want to do and it costs a little bit of money and maybe you don't have that much money right now, just remember that one day you'll have a job that will make you money and it won't even look like that much money now. So don't be afraid to spend a little bit on education if you need to. Um, but at the same time, there is a lot of free content out there too. So do search a little bit. Try not to just jump at the first thing that you find. Um, research is really important too, to make sure that you're, you're learning that the best things you can right now for you. Um, but yeah, it's a balance of sort of research, but also managing your time as well so that you're not spending too much time having to target your learning. But I th hopefully those things sort of help people. But um, I find that they're the, the major things that people make mistakes with when they try to learn something new or, or build their skills as a whole. Um, yeah, they're probably the main things and also just network too. That's one that um, really changed my career. When I started to network, it completely changed my perspective on the industry and just how many people I've connected with that can do things that I can't do, but now I can talk to them about something if I have a problem. Like it's a huge gain because I don't have to learn everything. Now I can actually go to like an expert in Python or go to an expert in Archicad or go to an expert in IFC and I don't have to necessarily know everything. I just need to know the right questions to ask people and I need to at least know the base knowledge, but, but I don't need to know like every single thing in the world. I just need to know people that know these things and are willing to you know, collaborate with me to, to share their knowledge as well. So I find that's really important. Like about two years ago, I think I only had probably like 300 connections on LinkedIn. Now it's about five and a half thousand just in two years. So it just it naturally just snowballs once you start networking. So I think that's really important. And to focus on the quality of connection as well, not the quantity. Um, so whilst I have five and a half thousand people, like I've probably had about 20,000 people try to connect with me. And, you know, most of them, I look at them and go, oh, this isn't going to add any value to my experience. So I need to, you know, think really hard about, you know, is this person someone that I can give value to and they can give value back to me? Uh, most of them are like life coaches and sort of people like that. So they're not necessarily relevant to what I do. It's not like a, a graduate where I go, oh, you're just a graduate. No, like I love connecting with graduates, but um, 
it just depends on on what value sort of we give to each other so so yeah hopefully they all sort of give some ideas to people looking for that learning journey i'm glad you accepted my invitation then this week course, it was yeah. not long ago <laughs> uh, you presented really well i mean it was, it was guaranteed as long as someone comes to me and they're in my field like if you're in like if, if they say nothing and they just try to connect with me usually they need to be in aec to some degree or like like if they're a product manufacturer i might not connect with them because chances are they're probably going to give me like a sales request and say hey you have any projects we need to make products for an outsourcer or something like that so those ones I, I, i'm pretty careful with um but if it's someone like such as yourself who's an aac professional like it's i'll pretty much always accept it and especially i mean you came to me with an invitation saying i've got a podcast and let, let's talk about bim and i was like yes that's exactly what i like doing so so you came to me in the perfect way <laughs> that's so nice i really hope i'll find more people like you man yeah, I mean, like I said, I've got a lot in my network, so um, I think we'll be able to connect a lot of people together, and yeah, I'm more, more than happy to put you in touch with more people that I think would um would bring a lot of value to to you and your show, um, and you bring a lot of value to them as well because I really like your perspective on BIM too. Like, I think we have a lot of common common ideas and experiences, and I think there's a lot that you can give to people as well through through your podcast. That's so nice to hear. Yeah, you just gave us uh, some really nice tips, but for people that are motivated to learn. We skip this step, right? What do we do with people that they think things are going well, how they go today? What is the message to everybody involved in this industry, but thinking they don't have a role in BIM? Yeah, that's a challenging one, but it's a great question. Um, I've been asked it before as well, and I've always had to develop my answer depending on who asks it. Um, Typically, I've worked with a lot of people like this too, that say, I don't really care about BIM. Um, some of them say BIM's a waste of time. I, I don't want to know about it. Some of them say I love BIM, but I just don't have time for it. Um, to them, I usually say that's okay. But I always just say, be just a little bit aware at least. Like, it'd be like if you worked with someone that just knew BIM and didn't know anything about your discipline. Like, you wouldn't trust them at all. Like, if, if, if you worked with an architectural BIM manager who never even worked on an architectural project, you'd be like, wow, this is, this is dangerous. Like, we can't have this person on the project. And sometimes it's a little bit like that for people working in BIM as well. Like we need that mutual trust between each other. So to have like at least an awareness of how like the programs fundamentally work together and, you know, what, what BIM's about, what processes are we trying to achieve? Like what, why should we just get out of a red pen drawing markup when we could go on a digital platform and do like a collaboration with a, with a, a program, like learn a little bit more about those sort of workflows that might, save you time or, or at least save your team time through you being more involved with those processes. I think that's probably the biggest takeoff I tend to give to people that are resistant to BIM. Um, if, they're, if they're of like a certain age where they're probably only going to be working with architecture or engineering for like another two years, I'm sort of like, uh, at least try to just, you know, understand it before you finish just so you can watch the industry grow and enjoy it still. So you can look back and go, wow, like everything's developing like a lot and you, and you understand more about what's changing. Because I think even if we, put our pens down and stop designing like in our head we're still watching the industry like we're passionate about it we care about it i think any professional would would probably look at the industry that way so i think everyone has a little bit to gain just from at least understanding like the fundamental concepts and then like maybe some of them want to learn more about how to do it maybe there's project leaders out there that actually do want to open up the models occasionally and actually get involved and review the model rather than review the drawings like I, i my roommate he's um he works as a project leader in an architectural firm and he's very involved with his model and his team like he'll open the model and have a look at how it's going because he's used revit before and he he goes in his model and originally his team i think they're probably a bit scared of that because he can see 
all the mistakes and the things that are still developing. But I think eventually they realized like there's a real opportunity, opportunity to lead your team in lots of different ways by being more involved rather than just giving orders and not understanding how it's done in the background. If you have an idea of what is actually being done, like it gives your team more transparency and it means that you're better at resourcing and you understand how, how your team, you know, actually works and you respect, you respect each other more. So I think there's that, that benefit that comes with it as well. And if you're not like an architect or an engineer, maybe you're a builder, a client, a facilities manager, it's just about asking people the right questions if you're interested. And if you're not interested, it's about, well, why are you not interested? Like, what, what is your plan for the next 20 years? Like, do you hope to just avoid this for 20 years? Do you, do you not care about it because it doesn't make you money? So at least like realistically ask yourself those questions um, and just maybe do just a little bit of research to make sure that if you don't care about it, that you've still got a safe job. Um, because sometimes people are avoiding it just in the hope that it won't become the next big thing and it already is the next big thing so it's quite dangerous to to ignore it it'll be mm -hmm. like the, the hand drawing the cad it's it's the next it's the next step so you know if, if you ignore it it's gonna it's gonna eventually somehow replace part of what you do um so i think there's always that just that need to be aware or just curious i guess at least yeah so that's sort of my advice to anyone that's maybe not necessarily yeah. trying to learn right now but maybe feeling pressure to yeah yeah, don't, this definitely... don't, don't be afraid to, to connect with people and just ask questions too. Like, I mean, most yeah. BIM professionals are quite friendly. A lot of people that they feel like, you know, will think they're stupid if they ask a question, but most of the time I'm very careful with how I talk to people if they're not quite sure. Like I don't want yeah. people to feel like rejected if they don't know the right, the right answer. So I think it's just, this is about asking people questions too and mm. not being afraid to, to get involved and find like a picture, a part in the bigger picture. I think also something else that, they need to think about is that if you don't do it, there are many others that do that. And at some point you are going to be affected by that. Yeah, it's a great point. I mean, you just look at the outsourcing industry and that, that completely changed the drafters. Like I, I don't know many drafters anymore. And I think the outsourcers took care of that. So it's just about yeah, being aware of all the ways that people can do your job as well. Is it, It's a good point. It's a threatening point, but it's a good one. <laughs> yeah. How can people get in touch with you, Gavin? Oh yeah, many ways. Um, probably the, the best way if you're not coming to me for work is just through my, my Gmail or my YouTube channel. So I've got my YouTube channel, the Aussie BIM Guru. Um, I, I've responded to every single comment I've ever received. So 100% comment success rate. So you will get a response. Um, but if you've got something more detailed, feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn or through my Gmail, which is AussieBIMGuru, one word, at gmail.com. And I typically respond in about a week at the at the latest um depending how busy i am um but i do try to respond with at least like some ideas of if someone's developing a script or they're running into a challenge um, i probably won't build your script for you um because i'd probably look at consulting at that point because it's my time um, but i do try to give thoughtful advice and I, I think people are usually really satisfied with with what i give them to work with um so I highly encourage anyone to connect um in in any of those avenues um i'm also on twitter um at the bim guru and um, I've also got my website, which is www.bimguru.com.au, um, which I release articles on uh, usually twice, uh, usually twice a month. I try to, um, and I also put all my podcasts on there. The links to the podcast, this one will be linked on there as well. Um, and I also um, I release content on there as well. Just it, it's pretty cheap. It's not too expensive. So I've released a company template, a shared parameters file, material library, all sorts of support files. Um, for anyone looking just for a place to start with Revit, 
because a lot of people don't have anywhere to begin. They just start with the default, the default template, which is pretty terrible. Um, so I at least try to give them somewhere to begin. And I'm releasing content for, for my website probably hopefully once a week I'm trying to. I've, I've released a package of some door families the other week that are quite, getting quite good reception. And they're all about $50 Australian each. So pretty affordable for most countries in the world. But if you do have some financial troubles, do, do contact me and I'll see what I can do. Because um, I, do, I do understand that different countries in the world, you know, have different economies and different currency conversions. So I try to be fair. Um, but yeah, they're probably the main ways you can reach out to me. And, and if anyone's interested in, you know, doing any podcasts and those sort of things with me too, I, I try to I try to do all of the ones I'm invited to. So um, yeah, and I, I'm really glad I did this one. This is this is a really good one. Um, so yeah, more than happy to be involved with, with any of those efforts in future. Yeah. Thank you very much. That that was really nice to hear from you. Thank you for uh, for coming in. Oh, thank you for having me. And um, and I know you said before your English isn't your first language. You got you got amazing English. So you know, carried it the whole way through perfectly. So um, should be very proud. Thank you very much. Yeah. Yeah, really enjoyed it. And great questions too. Really like the questions. Very, very well thought through. Yeah. I hope uh, the answers are going to inspire people to try to learn more about and see how, how we can together make a better world.